Welcome to the ninth episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we are going to discuss init systems. Due to scheduling mishaps, we don't have any follow-up to follow up on this time because we actually haven't released episode eight at the time of recording of episode nine. If you like the show or you have problems with the show, please leave us comments and feedback. We have discuss forums on the bottom of every episode at operations.fm. And you also can rate us in iTunes and other places. Um, Overcast, the iOS podcast player, has a rating review system in it, and other, others do as well. Please spread the word if you like us. And if you don't, tell us why you don't like us so we can change the show and make it more to your, to your tastes. So starting out, init systems. The, the basic framework that brings all of your demons and user-configured bits online when a system comes up. There have been a number of them over the years, and they change. There's only been one, SysV. <laughs> yeah, System 5 init, um, which a lot of people find very clunky and difficult to use because it is text files and directories, and you have to name things and number things correctly. And It's not the most forgiving system, but it works, and it's worked for many, many years, and that's why a lot of people don't want to change it. It's sort of one of those definitive things of of you're in unix land don't tell that to rel 7 <laughs> or anything that uses upstart currently i thought rel 7 was on, wasn't rel 7 on system d now rel yeah, 7 rel- is system d rel 6 is upstart rel 5 was sysv exactly and there are other init managers for they don't call them that necessarily os 10 has launch control which has an interesting XML-driven plist system that handles dependencies and ordering and other magic. They abandoned their Next-based ordering stuff years ago. Um, Solaris 10 brought the SMF, the Service Management Framework pieces, and SPC ADM, which was also XML-based but had a different way of operating and had a number of fairly nice features early on in the, the new model of init systems. Is XML ever a nice feature? In what, late 2000, like 2007, 2008, maybe 2006 even, Solaris 10 was very advanced in the idea that you could independently bring up services based on actual dependencies and restart and stop things. And, you know, if if networking failed to come up for some reason, you actually could say, I'm not going to try to start Apache and everything else. Whereas a lot of other init systems at the time still would just say, okay, well, boot failed. We're going to sit here at a prompt. Whereas Solaris would say, okay, well, networking's dead, but we're still going to bring up everything that doesn't need networking. So hopefully you can actually get into the box. It was, at the time, it was a novel concept, and it was fairly robust if it was a pain to work with. And I don't wish anybody the horror of dealing with OS X's launch control stuff. It's, it's functional, but just, and Apple doesn't provide any reasonable tools for it. So, yeah, just don't. If you can avoid it, don't. Just don't do it. So, who here loves System D? Okay, so System D, D so, gets a lot of hate. It it does. It really does. I and so, some of it's warranted, but not all of it. Some of it's warranted by the process things went through to be developed. There, there are definitely some unique personalities involved. It, I I like 
the part of system D that gives you a simple and concise config file format and does dependency management and does service restarting and all of those pieces. I don't like the system C D groups does all the monitoring, does all the security aspects of it. I, I don't like the, oh, we're going to write the logs to a, an encrypted binary file on disk, which you need a special tool to read. Because when you're doing a, when, when a machine is dead and you're trying to recover it and look through things, you're not always on the same operating system that is installed on the OS. So if you can't cap the log file or grep or whatever, now you're looking for somebody who has written a tool that can then pull that log file back out. It's, it's a mess, and I, I don't and like ever using. Are any, any of, of the popular distributions adopting Journal D? I thought it was part and parcel. I, I think uh, Journal. Yeah, I think you you don't have a choice there. I thought it was a separate process that was still in the System D suite of tools. It it is a separate process, but I think uh, maybe it's just because I'm I'm on Rel seven, you know, Rel seven. It's definitely there and and logging. So, um, you actually have uh, syslog pointing to journal, you know, writing to journal, journal D or whatever it is. I'm so glad I missed Rel seven. I not to get too much off topic here. I I I feel soon enough it's going to get to where we're going to see less and less dependence on uh, shared libraries and, and libraries in general on the OS so that you're more concerned about a kernel and, and system services needed to run apps, but then everything else is going to be some form of a container, whether that's Docker or something else down the road, who knows? But I think it's going to get to the point where we just care about, you know, really secure host OSs that can then run applications and the applications deal with all the dependencies and everything themselves. They don't actually need it, the host to provide that for them anymore. There's a logging in Docker is, is one of the most contested points about Docker. There's also a Linux distribution now that basically is a collection of containers. You have a container that's your front end networking a container that's your back end networking, a container for boot, a container for user space stuff, a container for other things. It's, it's an interesting way to partition the system. Um, there's still some rough edges, of course, because with a rewrite like that, there are always rough edges. But that world is coming. And if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. And I guess to kind of tie it all back together, uh, maybe we won't be necessarily debating so much about uh, init systems anymore because we'll be launching containers. <laughs> Docker will be your init system. And and I, and I guess that kind of leads me to one of the reasons why I do actually like System D over uh, SysV, and that's I, I get it. SysV is very Unixy feel to it. You know, it's very uh, it could be a, the a net script can be very simple. It can be very uh, crazy, um, but I feel they can get out of hand because you're doing so much boilerplate. You you have to. Uh, you know, everybody's got to define a start, stop, and restart, and and there are all these things that you have to do over and over again. When uh, convention over configuration would be so much better. That is one of my biggest problems with the System Five SysV init system. That oh, you, you want to write a new service, and you now need to go copy somebody else's or write your own, you know, sixty or seventy line shell script. It's like, but why? And don't forget to properly integrate with the uh, uh, Red Hat or Ubuntu provided uh, 
handy functions for starting and stopping and oh god exactly i was about to say daemonizing mm-hmm. between the two distributions is crazy what really drives me bonkers is when folks write an upstart or systemd unit file and they use some of the old bash based uh daemon management process from the system 5 crap it it, it just makes me want to reach through the monitor I've only we'll done that it. once in my, in my defense. <laughs> They're and so used to doing I, it. I needed, a, but, I needed a PID file explicitly written to disk in a specific space, and the demon I was dealing with didn't do that in any way, and that was the quickest way forward. I'm sure I'm doing it wrong, though. Isn't there like a uh, after the exec starts command that you can run to find the PID and write it to, to the yeah, disk? Yeah, the, the, the exec start stop. I thought that was part of the old the old magic, not the new magic. Well, I mean, there's in system D, there's exec start pre post, I think, or something like that, that but, are, is right after it starts the service. This is an upstart based system. Oh, oh. Luckily, I haven't dealt with that too much. So, upstart's actually fairly friendly and forgiving, and it's easy to read what it's doing. I really love the upstart uh, configuration files. Uh, I think that configuration language is just beautiful in how it handles pre and post scripts, execing your your process. That that just works for me. And I know System D is very similar in those exact aspects, but well, why is it that everything must be forced into an INI file? Brackets. Yeah, maybe it's the Ruby and me showing, but I, I really do like YAML files. JSON's not too bad either. Hey, I always thought it was the Python and me showing when I said I always like YAML files. Yeah, for it's me, just YAML is a real... Um, can we swear on this podcast, Brendan? Sure, why YAML not? is a bitch to parse. <laughs> to parse manually or with a, with a library? My eyes parse a whole lot better than libraries do. So, fun fact, you know JSON is a superset of YAML? Excuse me, a subset of YAML. JSON is valid YAML. Holy cow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's useless just... facts for today. Not all YAML can be turned into JSON. If you use the uh, crazy typing aspects of YAML, which I very rarely do, which tells the reading program how Twitch type to transmute the data back into. Yeah, that doesn't work. But I usually just do uh, lists and hashes and scalars, which is perfectly valid, Jason. I sadly pass lots and lots of strings. Oh yeah, strings, strings. Don't forget the strings. But another aside, when Puppet gets an int and it wants a string, or the other way around, it complains dearly and bitterly at you for various stupids because... It's DSL isn't... It has its issues. We're talking about init systems today, right? Sorry, I'm off... Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm sure there are lots of people out there that would like to use Puppet as their init system. And with Upstart and SystemD, Puppet can actually appropriately control your services without randomly guessing. Yeah, I was about to say, that's another problem that I have with SysV, is if you don't have a properly written... And it file that handles the PID properly, especially to provide a good status 
um, Puppet method will for... automatically use grep to scrape your process table. Really? Yes. I thought it ran status. If or I guess if you define a different command, um, it does, and then it gives up and and greps your process table to find the process you want to restart. Did not know it did that part. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I love people that grep my process table. <clears throat> I'm not even gonna. I thought this was supposed to be a clean show. Yeah. So, um, back on topic. I think the biggest thing that System D has against it is there's a lot of perception in the community about the folks who spearheaded the System D project and the fact that System D is starting to take over more and more and more of the what, what people see as the operating system itself. So networking and firewalls and other pieces are now being pulled into and either wholly controlled or replaced by system D workalikes or equivalents. And that violates one of the basic tenets of the Unix philosophy, which is you have one thing and do one thing. Well, yeah, be, be generous in what you accept and be conservative in what you output and do your one job. And system D tries to do all the jobs for all the people all the time. And uh, there's a couple of, well, maybe more than a couple of, of crazies out there who think that uh, the NSA is behind System D, and that is the reason why it's taking over so many pieces of your system. Yeah, I don't buy that, and I don't buy that the two the two lead developers. They're I think they're at Red Hat now. That they have they have some kind of you know horrible conspiracy or whatever, and I don't believe in any of that that stuff. I think they had an idea that they ran with, and they executed it well enough to get people to pay attention to it and then iterated on it quickly enough to get a good solid working piece of code out and and had opinions about how it should work yeah. now and in the future and the core of system d works really well it's the fact i mean this is open source everything. we've never run into strong personalities about software development have we so jack what's your favorite editor and why is it vi because VI is my favorite editor and everyone should use VI. I don't think that we have any dissenters in this podcast, but it's that kind of thing. There's a holy wars that go on about everything. Yeah, my Linux. manager uses Emacs. Yeah, I just, I don't have that many fingers. Um, anyway, there's all these holy wars that go on about how things are supposed to happen and it very quickly turns into name calling, which even the founder of Linux isn't above dragging himself into he he's very well known for he has written some fantastic emails and he doesn't care if he steps on people's toes or if he he does ad hominem attacks when he's telling somebody that their code's inadequate but all the same i don't like system d's nature of taking over everything yeah another thing i really i like about system d over uh, sysv and i guess upstart kind of falls in this category too is that since it does manage your process there's more involved in managing the process it helps launch java applications much better than you know i always despise daemonizing or using an exec and then uh, amper standing at the end to background the process because there's no way to background a java process but this isn't a podcast about why we hate java no i mean i'm just making a making a, a, a yes it a is comment that uh, that system D and I guess I uh, to a lesser extent upstart helps out those kind of applications because 
then you're you're not writing. Like I said, to me, it's very dirty to sit there and just do a you know back to background it with an ampersand at the end of the of the line. Um, so it just helps the obsessive in me to not see that at the end. Yeah, well, it's also just it's it's cleaner to do it the right way. And if you can do the right way in five lines of configuration file instead of sixty or seventy, you're more likely to get it right, and it's easier to maintain going forward. The next person who walks in and has to sit down and take over whatever piece of code or whatever service you wrote, it's it's less intellectual friction for them to pick up the new thing or the old thing or however it is. It's simple things or supposedly simple things like how do you write your code to to run as a daemon on the system with upstart and system D. You don't. Upstart and system D take care of daemonizing your process and keeping track of it. With uh, system V, there a lot of folks have written the daemonizing bits into their own code, and then you have code that forks once you execute it once, twice, five or six times to appropriately daemonize and do security things and it gets very deep and magical and obscure very quickly. Yeah, I've gone And everybody through, does it differently. I've gone through several iterations in Perl and Python of how do you make this thing into a daemon? How do you properly start and stop it? What's the what's the current best practice for how to handle all of that? And that's just bad. Let the init manager handle that part of it and 12 factor apps. Exactly. Your code just runs and it logs standard out. And and I and I think again not to diverge too much again that's why I love containers is because they are launching an app and in the foreground and if Docker could ever get some sort of sane logging situation going then those would could be piped off to to syslog or logstash or whatever. Jared, I just want to say that I'm trying really hard not to talk about graphite tonight. Okay, we've gotten pretty far afield now. So what's practical about systems D? It's clear, it's concise, it's easy to commit things to Git repos in other places. It integrates well with most configuration management systems. So Puppet and Chef and those things can use it easily. Because it interf- interfaces with the fairly standard service stuff, you can use Ansible to control things very easily. All of your old tools still mostly work. And it gives you a cleaner way to move forward. And I would also say that since uh, it can also manage C groups and namespaces for your process uh, mm-hmm. so that you can actually set limits on said process. Limits that work. Yeah, when C groups were first brought in to, this, to the conversation with, with System D, it was like, okay, that, that's, that's all dark magic, and it, it didn't work quite right. And all the Solaris guys were laughing at us because, like, yeah, we did, we did this 10 years ago with, with Solaris containers. Come on. But now... It works and it works well and you can easily limit things to memory sizes and processor counts and other things without much wailing or gnashing of teeth. Um, Other things I find really easy in System D that were always much more tricky in System 5 or other things is setting open file handle limits and all of the the other base environmental factors of running your application. It's really easy. It's really straightforward. Actually, this is true in Upstart as well, but it's... In the modern configuration management stuff, it's really easy. It's just a configuration parameter away. I'm just not as familiar as I would like to be about the init systems war. I've mostly just ignored it. Yeah, I could just describe a funny GIF that I think uh, Brendan sent me where it was like Pac-Man eating uh, started off 
<laughs> what was it? It was like eating uh, this system service or this thing or NTP or whatever. It just kept on eating. We can post that on the website. And I guess another handy feature about System D is that you can launch <gasps> Docker containers. That is nice. Um, how it, how well it integrates with all of the pieces in Docker and the other container runtimes. Yeah, I guess Inspawn can do multiple different types of containers, not necessarily just Docker. And uh, I, I think it is kind of amazing that what the core OS guys do, because um, it's pretty much a Gen 2 distribution with uh, System D and a few other little utilities, and that's it. Well, somebody explained to me why core OS, which seems really awesome, has to be made out of Gen 2. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're hip? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I really do think it's how they do package management. Well, quote unquote package management because you know there's the alpha channel and is it beta channel there's there's two channels and you know they they i guess with um was it portage on gen 2 uh, i guess they can you know distribute that very easily and I, you know i really don't know why they their choice is gen 2 for me the decision on for core os what they're using as their lowest level layer i really don't care because basically, it, to me, it's okay. It's System D and it's Docker, and I'm never going to mess with the image. Um, if I need to, when, it, when it's time to upgrade, I just restart the the machines, the, host, the hosts with the new image, and I keep on going. I I don't you don't do any. I don't spend any time at the core OS level. All your time is spent in what console or etcd or whatever they're using for distributed key value, and you don't deal with configuring core OS ever. I've never found Ubuntu to be a scalable, supportable solution. So I'm jaded and bitter. But perhaps the apt analogy here is is CoreOS and other uh, Gentoo derivatives are really, in fact, meta distributions where you're actually using the tools to generate the distribution you need to be able to run your, your cluster and your Docker images. I think that's a very fair description. Um, a lot of people who use like Arch Linux and stuff, which I think also has a system D. Yeah, they were one of the first ones to adopt it or switch it over as their default in it. And I've seen um, Arch Linux installs that are, you know, 300 megabytes. And that that's enough to get the machine up to bring up an iSCSI driver. So you can turn your Pogo plug into an iSCSI volume. And you can go all the way from that to running servers and stuff. It's It's pretty... It, it runs the gamut from, from the top to the bottom, and I like that. But I choose distributions that have all the tools that I'm going to use in them already, so I, I don't go find them and configure them and install them and spend three or four days, you know, Gentoo emerging, whatever the thing is that I need. But for a Docker host, you don't need any of the, the other crap. And a lot, of this, a lot of this depends on where in the pendulum swing, you know, we happen to be where... <clears throat> In the before time, everything was a static library. Uh, then we moved into a great time of package management where all the libraries were dynamically linked. If Zlib had a uh, security exploit, you patched Zlib, and that was the only thing you had to upgrade. And now in our uh, move back into containers, the pendulum has swung back to where it started for us, with everything being statically linked and very little dependencies yes and no the model of containers is that containers are disposable 
And when you find an issue, you just revision and cycle as fast as you can. A lot of the older systems that that were the old statically linked stuff were the systems that ran for, you know, 10 years and you could never upgrade anything because the business folks who relied upon it wouldn't let you. And so, okay, yeah, we have an ancient version of Zlib or glibc or whatever it is and we'll, we're never upgrading because all these other things depend on it but with containers the idea is that you spin them out you should be releasing containers frequently and often to get rid of to upgrade things to patch things to to move through the system and so you won't have containers that run for two years right and i think it's it's shifting the burden of who has to patch the libraries right now it's you know you're if especially if you're in the dynamically linked phase that you're depending on your OS to do it. But as we're going back towards containers and, and like you mentioned, static compiled, static like um, LinkedIn, uh, it's more of the app developer who has to maintain that. And now distributions are becoming more and more just a kernel and a few <coughs> systems that you need to run uh, for the system as a whole to function. And that's it. Do we trust our developers to, uh, apply security patches i mean that's kind of been that's always kind of been my thing since i've earned my chops in a very uh dynamically linked world um and making sure uh machines were secured and got updates and well but lived on the raw internet and i didn't trust a lot of other people to be able to do the needed maintenance for themselves and they repeatedly proved they couldn't but was that, was that because it was difficult? Because now, I mean, especially like if you're using, uh, let's just use Rails as an example. You know, you just go in your gem file and bump the version up and bundle install and you're done. And, you know, a few years ago it was yum and, you know, yum upgrade or app get upgrade or, or something like that. Something necessarily a developer wouldn't understand. But now as every language has its own package manager. <laughs> uh, let's it, not it, get onto that topic tonight. <laughs> developers have become more comfortable, you know, upgrading their, you know, having a responsibility of upgrading their dependencies. Init systems, containers, security. We've covered the gambit tonight. A little bit of packaging as well thrown in there, just, just for good measure. Well, I think it's, I think it shows that how, you know, all those kind of combined, an init system touches all of that to be honest with you. So I think it's kind of difficult not to just at least right. touch on those subjects. Well, and it's systems used to handle the starting and stopping of processes. And that was it. Run levels. Yeah. It was the, at run level, at, at multi-user, at single user, at restart, at shutdown, you know, go and do these things. And that if was you it. you don't have a run level zero and a run level six, are you still running a Unix? Perhaps that's the... Fundamental question. So that wraps it up for episode nine of the Practical Operations Podcast. We look forward to seeing you next week. We're your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Good night.